Good morning, Church. It's always a pleasure when they, the technology works. <clears throat> I remember the last time I spoke, I got out to speak and half the church ran away. So it's a pleasure to have some young people here, at least for a brief time. <clears throat> Very brief. It reminds me of the time when I was teaching and I, we were doing some social studies and I pulled down the map and it was one of those roller blind things. And I said, now for a brief look at whatever the country was, and next thing it took off. <laughs> and one of the kids called out, it was a brief look. <laughs> now, I have some interesting things for you to look at, and one of them is this particular object. Um, when I look at it long enough, I see the reflection of a koala's face, but that's just me. Um, if you look at it, you will realize that it's, it's not a deep-sea creature. It's actually a looks like metallic thing with some legs. But it is a model of the Sputnik 1. I'm not sure what happened to the real Sputnik 1. It's probably rusted away. But Sputnik 1 was launched into orbit on the 4th of October uh, 1957. And uh, I think I remember it because I was alive then. And something's happened. When the Americans saw this thing that was, went up, they said, what does it do? Well, they learned it just goes round and round. But they said, but it's a Russian thing going round and round. We want an American thing that goes round and round. So that's how the space race started. But behind the scenes, there was a mass panic because they realised in order to have something go round and round, you have to have some pretty advanced math skills because you've got to compute trajectories and think about gravity and physics and all that sort of stuff. And so they then thought, how come the Russians can do this and not us? So they came to the conclusion that the Russians were better at teaching maths. So they then decided to revise their entire maths curriculum. Now in New Zealand, we have a habit of copying the Americans, but there's always a time lag. So about 15 years later, we had also revised our maths curriculum and produced all this material as well to support it. Now that happened to coincide with me beginning my career as a primary school teacher. So I was having to ask questions of my seven-year-olds like, what is the cardinality of the set? And they went, what? So I then had to translate it into basic English. How many things are there? They got that, because they were quite good at maths, at least with the basic arithmetic we were doing. So then I produced this new textbook we were given, which had some very simple addition and subtraction in it, which they could do. And, and so it was aimed at about seven-year-old level. But the instructions were written in highfalutin English, aimed at about a 14-year-old level, so they could never read it. So I'd give them some work to do, They'd do a first couple of examples, hit the new instruction and say, what does this mean? So in the end, I gave up, ditched that book, found an old one that worked. And one day, I got a chance to speak to an inspector and said, this new maths book is dreadful. And he said to me, the people that designed it have PhDs in maths. And I thought, yes, but they know nothing about children. And uh, for a long while, I thought, who made my life difficult? I suspected it was the Russians. <clears throat> but I was wrong. 
it was somebody in Wellington who decided to make life difficult for me and for a lot of other people. And this was an example of this top-down management thinking, and I'm sure you've all met it. Now, in some instances, it works when you have some leaders, some managers, and the rest of us doing the work at the bottom. And it worked for the Roman army. They just said, you line up, and you, when the barbarians come, you just stick them with your little sword, and nobody's to break ranks and run away. And it worked. And it works if you've got a Roman Empire where a third of your population are slaves. They do what they're told. But it doesn't work too well when the people at the bottom are actually educated. Now, sometimes in the church, we've adopted this traditional model of this top-down thinking. And it worked in the Middle Ages because people were, uh, a lot of them were slaves to start with, and then later on they were just peasants. And so they went to church, and it was in Latin or Greek or something else, which they never understood. Occasionally they got a sermon in their own language. And to help them, the churches had stained glass windows which had pictures of biblical stories. But, and that worked for a thousand or so years. And then you got, um, with printing turning up and translation of the Bible into different languages, people could read the Bible for themselves. And they got really excited. And that was the beginning of the Reformation. But then you got a change in the leadership structure because no longer did the people at the bottom know nothing. They could read the Bible and check that you were saying the right thing. And of course today with the internet, when I say something, if, you, if I say something controversial, you'll go home, or you might just whip out your phone, please don't do it now, and see that I'm saying something that's true. And you can also look up commentaries and other background stuff. So we are now a very educated group. And looking at you reminds me of a church I was in some 20 years ago, because they were like you. They were smart, they were well-dressed, they were generous, they were caring, and they had gifted musicians, and they were good-looking. They also had a pastor who was very good. He was average height, he was very um, ordinary in his look, but he was very positive in his uh, sermonising and his teaching. And he encouraged people to share. And sometimes, when he was up speaking, he would get heckled from the audience. Not in a bad way, but in a bit of banter. Because people loved him. And it was a sense of one big whole family. And then, during the rest of the week, he was busy counselling people because he was a great listener and supporting people in, in the crisis. He was so good at being a pastor that one day a Bible college in Auckland poached him. Now, we had joined this, this church because we liked the congregation. We really didn't worry about the denomination it belonged to. But it was one with a hierarchical structure. And the head office discovered we had a vacancy for a pastor. Now, they had a problem. They had a new pastor who had been put into a pastorate and something had gone wrong. So they were looking, and they pulled him out, and they were looking for a new place to put him. And suddenly we had a vacancy. So they didn't ask us, they just said, this is your new pastor. So he came, and he was quite different. He was tall, he was muscular, and he stood very straight. And he preached his first sermon, and it was fine. 
When we came to church next week, we discovered something. That during the week it had an elders meeting. One of the elders had resigned on the spot and left the church. And over the next few months, or few weeks I should say, the rest of the elders quit. We thought, what's going on? And it was no explanation. And then as time went on, the next few months, we would come to church and think, I haven't seen so-and-so for a while. Where are they? And when you ask the question, oh, they've left the church. It was like people were just jumping ship. There were no farewells. There were no thank you for your contribution over the years. Just people just leaving. And it was very sad. And I think it was because for two reasons. One, that the pastor had been told, look, you have got, this is your church, you've got to make a go of it. This is your second chance. And secondly, because he was told somehow that of this top-down model where he's at the top and all the others will have to do what you say. And it didn't work. They rebelled and they left. You know, in, in Matthew 20, 25, Jesus said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, but it's not that way among you. His understanding of how a church should be was that the leaders were encouragers, like people on the sideline encouraging us in the race of life, not people bossing us around. In fact, in First Peter, which we've been looking at, Peter said, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Now this pastor that I've told you about was compelled from within. He was desperately trying to prove that he could run a church and do it well. And the more he tried, the more he dominated. He preached every sermon, he made every decision, and it didn't work for him. And sometimes the compulsion comes from head office. They say, you must promote this program or this, this offering or whatever. And sometimes, as we know, um, there are some leaders who are motivated by greed. They preach a prosperity doctrine, and the only one who seems to prosper is them. They have the flash cars and the good houses. But that's not how it should be. And Peter says this because this was a problem. It's a problem with human nature. When we are in a position of authority, we suddenly get an inflated ego. And we want to be important. And I know, I've met a number of pastors over the years, and when they get together at Ministers Fraternals, they say, and how are your numbers going? Oh, we've got 100. Oh, yes, that's good. We've got 120. And they compete. And when it gets into a mega church, of course, the ego really goes off the scale, which is why we hear these scandals. But it's not the way that it should be. Now, you might remember this character, those of you who are a bit older. This is Chuck Colson. He was Richard Nixon's hatchet man, and when the scandal blew up, he knew he was facing a prison term. And the year before he went to prison, somebody gave him a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and he read it, and he became a Christian. But he still had to face going to jail. So he went to jail, and afterwards when he came out, he found a prison fellowship, because he understood the pressures that prisoners and their families are under. But he wrote some books as well. And one of them he said, the church cannot model the kingdom of God if it is conformed to the kingdoms of man. So Peter said that we should not, our leaders should not be domineering over us, but they should be examples to the flock, 
I'm not suggesting that Craig should lead us in a marathon or anything, or a sprint. But their leaders should be examples. Not behind us cracking the whip, but out front showing us how to do it and encouraging us. So the question comes, how do church leaders humbly lead us today? And you would have noticed that in this, in this first Peter series, the word humility comes up a lot as to the word suffering. Well, I have the answer. which I, I learned this when I was teaching children. I was reading through 1 Thessalonians one day, and I thought, this is exactly what I need to do as a teacher. And to my surprise, I was already doing a lot of it. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And when I was teaching in adults, um, I found this useful too. I remember one time I was teaching a, a level three computer course to some ladies who were, were re-entering the workforce. And they were very nervous. In fact, when they asked a question, they would say things like, uh, excuse me, um, I must be dumb, but... And I would say, no, you're not dumb, you're smarter than the machine. And they were very nervous, as I said. And eventually, they got better. They learned how to use spreadsheets and word processes. And they gained in self-confidence. And at the end, they passed the course, and later on, they went out and got a job. And I thought, wonderful. I was able to encourage the faint-hearted. When I was working for a polytech, I got a chance to help the weak. There were 18 modules they had to do to complete this qualification. They had done 17 of them. The 18th one, they had failed. And that was Introduction to Programming. Now, I know there are some clever people in here who know a bit about programming, but for us ordinary mortals, it's difficult to learn. And at the, the department I worked in, there were some exceedingly clever computer people who had learned to become teachers. But I was the opposite. I was a teacher who was learning about computing. So I understood what these people were doing. And I still remember that first class I had, all these people coming in, and they were nervous because they knew if they didn't pass this course for a second time, they wouldn't graduate. So I took things very slowly, very patiently. I kept telling them, look, there's going to be no surprises in the test. It'll be just like the exercises we've done in class. And I kept my word. And eventually, they passed that course, and they graduated. And I felt, yes, I have helped the weak. Now, some of the other tutors were keen about teaching that class because they could leap ahead very quickly. But I took them slowly and patiently. Now, you notice I've missed out the first one, admonish the unruly. I didn't have to do that too much in, as a, um, when I was teaching adults. But it has to be done. And those of you who are parents or teachers know that if you have someone being unruly, you can't let it go for their sake and for the sake of all the rest of the class. In the, the Polytech, I had a friend who was a fine Christian man who knew his area of, of, of teaching very well and also exercised pastoral care for the students. If they had a problem, he would help them. But one day, he got an assignment, and he marked it, and it was brilliant. It was 90%. And then he marked the next assignment and the next and thought, that's funny. Three of them are identical. So he called in the three students. 
No doubt they were expecting to be hauled over the coals. But he said to them, look, this assignment is brilliant. It's 90%. And they looked at him and thought, what's coming next? And he said, but it's obvious that two of you cheated, but I don't know which two it was. So I've decided to be fair, and I've divided up the 90% among the three of you, so you've all got 30. Which unfortunately means you failed, so you're going to have to do a reset. Which I think was a very wise, shrewd, and gentle way of dealing with it. He didn't call them in and blast them, but he did haul them up for what they were doing. And sometimes you've got to do that. Now, in the church, that happens as well. But sometimes when a, a church leader has to discipline somebody, you have a person who will say, I'm right. And they, would dis- they will not receive the, the admonition, which is a shame. But if, and sometimes they want to withdraw. Now, the reason I've got a picture of, of some musk ox up there is because they're amazing creatures. They have special hooves that enable them to dig through the ice and snow so they can get to the grass. But they also have an instinctive behaviour. When a pack of wolves comes to threaten their young ones, or any of them that may be weak or vulnerable, the rest of the herd pile around them on the outside, facing outwards with their horns. And apparently both male and female musk ox have horns. And so they protect their young. And, and they're vulnerable. And I think the church is just like that. So if ever there's an occasion when you uh, have disagreed with the leadership, don't storm off on your own. That makes you vulnerable. Instead, if you still stay with Christians, if you're still part of the community, they will surround you with prayer and they can protect you. Because if you straggle off on your own in a huff or because you're unhappy with people, you are vulnerable. And Peter said this, he said, Be on your guard and stay awake. Your enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion sneaking around to find someone to attack. A lion would never attack a band of muskox or a herd that's protecting its own, but they will hunt the stragglers. And that's a warning from Peter. So how do we make sure that we don't become one of those stragglers? Well, Peter tells us that too. He said, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so he may exalt you at the proper time. So interesting, he doesn't just say, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That will be sufficient for us, I think. But there's a promise in there as well. So he may exalt you at the proper time. And the proper time is not straight away, because we've still got to deal with issues if we come to repent of something. But that's God's hope. His hope is that if we have got ourselves in such a stew that we are angry or bitter about something, that he can't use us, he wants us to get over it so that he can use us and there will come a time when we can be used. He also mentions having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. This is one of my favourite verses because I get angsty all the time. But it's interesting that the Greek word that's translated as cast is bello, which means to throw. And sometimes... I've been guilty of having a concern and I give it to God because that's what I've been told for 50 years and then a day or so later I reach over and grab it back again I worry about it and then I might give it back again and this happens repeatedly but Peter said we are to throw it cast it, heave it, chuck it 
And once you've done that, you can't really get it back too easily. You've just got to trust God. And then he goes on to say, after you've suffered for a little while, and I know that when you're going through some form of suffering, it just seems like it's an eternity. But Peter said it does come to an end. And then, if you survive that, something marvellous happens. The God of all grace who called you in his eternal glory in Christ will himself mature, confirm, strengthen and establish you. There is a reward for having survived that suffering. That suffering is like a doorway. And sometimes we just get in that suffering and then we look at our own problems and think it's never going to end. But if you look beyond, there is light at the end of the tunnel. But there's more than light. I think that what Peter is talking about is a progression. That once we can get through the suffering and become mature, then God can do things with us. And the next step is, conf is to confirm or confirmation. Suddenly, when you've got through that stage, things open up for you. Money arrives you didn't really think would. Opportunities arrive to serve God that you didn't think would, but they do. And you say, oh, this is good. This is what I wanted to do all along. And then as you take those opportunities, you get stronger. And finally, you get established to the ministry. And if, when you're established, you are very popular and you do very well, you're not going to be hampered by your ego because they could ham it out of you at the suffering stage. So I want to encourage you that, as we've been talking about suffering and humility, that if you're in this stage, yes, you've, you've come through some suffering and you've still got some hopes and desires of how you want to serve God, that there are opportunities yet for ahead of, for you. But the, so the question is, do you want Jesus to lift you up to the next step or are you happy with where you are? I hope you want to progress because you've all got huge potential. But it all starts with repentance. And the word the Greek word translated repentance just means changing your mind and heading in the opposite direction. But sometimes that's hard because of our pride. And a common theme in Peter is humility, as I said. And Peter says, God opposes proud people, but he helps everyone who is humble. So we have an opportunity this morning to humbly come before God with communion. And in 1 John 1 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think most of the time we'd be happy when our sins are forgiven, but we get more than that. We are cleansed, so we're completely able to approach God. And as Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore let us approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at a time of need. The other thing about communion is that it is um, shared by Paul when he said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's something prophetic about taking communion because it's a symbol of, the, of eternal life that's ours. It's a symbol of hope that one day Jesus will return and put the world to rights and should we be die before then, our spirit goes to be with Jesus in heaven, which is great. And we can survive whatever suffering comes our way because we know that we have eternity with God that's promised.
Amen. So 